0: Well some of you remember the movie Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams was the star of the show. He he was Professor Keating and he was the new teacher at a private school for high school boys. And he wants to, to be a different kind of teacher. He doesn't want to just pass on information but he wants to pass on a passion for life. And one of the things he does on his very first day of class is to come in and take the boys out to the hallway and have them stand before a trophy case where past um, students at the school had had won honors and accomplishments. And there were pictures of some of those students and he has them look at these students. And he says to them this, this statement, They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts, full of hormones, just like you. Invincible, just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things, just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope, just like you. And then he asked them this question. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go in, lean in. And as they lean in, Robin Williams here, as Professor Keating, says, Carpe Diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Professor Keating here is is passing on the legacy of those who've gone before them, saying, look, you got one life to live. Make your life extraordinary. In fact, our common way of putting it is YOLO. You'll see this hashtag on social media, which means you only live once. And so you might do what the old beer commercial said, grab for the gusto, grab for, for that which pleases you, grab for all the entertainment and life you can get, because you only go around once. And as I think about that opening scene to the movie and this hashtag that goes around, I wonder what Solomon himself would say, that ancient sage whose voice we hear coming at us in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think in many ways Solomon would say something like this, been there Done that, I even got the t-shirt. <laughs> I lived the extraordinary life. I pursued all the gusto I could get. I had accomplishments and trophies. No one surpassed me in living the high life. And yet, he tells us these words, I considered everything my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after win. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun now at first blush when we hear solomon speak like this we're thinking this is a downer but remember the goal of the sage of ecclesiastes is your joy in fact if we can use words from the new testament he is working for your joy and for mine but in order for us to arrive at that joy, he has to, to pry our hands off everything that we think will bring us joy. Whatever accomplishments, achievements, collections of possessions and experiences, he's, he's trying to get our hands off of that so that it can be then opened to experience true joy. So we're going to call our study today, Surprised by Joy. And we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verses 12 through 26. And as we get ready to to look and see what he says there, inspired by the Spirit, let's take just a moment and and pray and ask God to be the one who actually teaches us during this time. So let's join together. Lord, as we come together uh, over this medium of the internet and listen in to what your ancient word teaches us, we pray that you would open our ears, that we may learn wisdom, that you would open our eyes to see the truth that you have for us this day, that you would open our hearts to receive your grace, to receive your joy, to receive your good news, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're studying this book of Ecclesiastes. This is one of the books that Jesus himself studied and prayed over and saw his life in light of. And so even though we're listening to these words of the ancient sage, we're listening to them because they contain for us words of life. And so this is what Solomon said. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So Solomon has just told us about all his collections and all his experiences and all his possessions. And he found them leaving him with an ache at the end of the day. And so now he's turning himself to consider wisdom. And I think if we were to, to make a, a summary of what he's saying here, it might look like this. I, I turn to consider wisdom and mad folly, the madness that is in folly. And there's a, almost a parenthetical statement. He says, what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And I think what we're meant to hear here is that whoever comes after the king, can he accumulate more wealth? Can he... Pursue more experiences than Solomon had? Maybe, but that's unlikely. He's probably only going to do what he's already done himself collect things and collect experiences. So Solomon here turns to consider wisdom and and mad folly. And he says this in verse 13 Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, And yet I perceive the same event happens to them all. Here Solomon is is saying, look, it it seems like there's a truth in the saying that it's better to be wise than to be a fool. After all, the person who is wise walks around in light. They're they're not constantly falling into traps that, that a foolish person might do. But he says, you know, at the end of the day, I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Can't help but but hear the controversialist Woody Allen say, There is a tall, dark stranger that we will all eventually meet, that we don't want to meet. Yeah, that's what Psalm is talking about. Whether you're wise or whether you're a fool, you're still going to meet that tall, dark stranger that none of us really wants to meet. He says in verse 15, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. And then have I been, and why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this also is vanity. Solomon in sense, is opening the, the very core of his life, telling you his, his deep thoughts here. And he says, look, at the end of the day, have I gained anything by being wise? It seems like if, if the same event happens to me as happens to the fool, I can't get my head around that. In fact, he uses that word vanity. And remember, that word means smoke or vapor, mist, or even a breath. It's it's that which is very fleeting. And it's used as a metaphor for an enigma, a paradox, or a mystery. Solomon says, when I try to get my head around this idea that it's better to to be a wise person than a fool, and yet at the end of the day, we both are going to meet that tall, dark stranger that we'd rather not meet, death, I can't get my head around. That's that's just crazy, he says in verse 16. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies like the fool. Here, Solomon is stepping back and taking a bird's eye view of life, and and even life after our life, and those who come behind us. And Solomon says, Look, there's there's no enduring remembrance of anyone. You know, Solomon was famous, and we have some of his words here, but but we don't know him as, as a friend might or a family member might. There's no enduring remembrance. We're, we're going to be long forgotten. And this is what is perplexing the sage. This is what he's wanting us to, to get our minds around. Is it better to be wise than a fool? Yes. But at the end of the day, we're all going to meet that tall, dark stranger. I'm reminded of another saying of Woody Allen. He said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. (laughs) I think we can all understand something of what he's saying there. What Solomon says next, though, I think might surprise us. In verse 17, he said, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. (laughs) I think I think you and I, probably our first instinct is to, is to run to Solomon and say, Hey, buddy, don't be so hard on yourself. We don't like it to hear someone say that they hate life. Everything seems grievous to them. But what if we stop to ask the question, why is this verse in the Bible? Why do we have this inspired account by Solomon collected in, in a section called The Wisdom Literature of the Sacred Scriptures? And, and it says, "I hated life. what are we, What are we meant to do with that? If someone were having coffee with you and they confided into you confided to you these words, I hate life, because all that is done under the sun seems grievous to me. What would you say? I, I think probably the instinct in, in many of our hearts is to to respond by saying, Hey." You know, Stay on the sunny side of life. Don't get so down. But maybe we can be honest for a moment. My friends, aren't there times that you hate life? Aren't there times when you look around at this world and you see everything that's going on and it is grievous to you? I think we're living in a moment in which the entire world in one sense is saying this. I'm hating life right now. Everything seems grievous. Living there in time of pandemic, trying to navigate that, seeing uh, both on the one hand some of the the best coming out of people, but often a lot of the worst coming out of people. Isn't there a sense in which you say, I hate the way things are? Uh, Solomon is confessing to you that he hated life. And I think these words are in Scripture because there's a sense in which we need to understand that, that life as it is now is not the way it's supposed to be. Did you see this last week, an announcement by Japanese authorities that in light of the COVID crisis, uh, they want people who are riding on roller coasters to scream inside their heart. In other words, don't scream out loud with the chance of of spreading the coronavirus. Instead, instead, please scream inside your heart. I saw that and I just had to laugh. And and then I saw a tweet by Jake Tapper, the, the news correspondent. And he said the motto of 2020, please scream inside your heart. And so I think when we see these words by Solomon the sage, when he says, I I hated life and everything was grievous to me under the sun, I think he's saying, I'm screaming inside my heart. And my friends, I think there's a moment, an opportunity for us really to, to learn wisdom here. What if our tears and screams are meant to teach us something fundamental about life under the sun, life east of Eden, life as we experience it now. In his book, Recovering Eden, the Gospel according to Ecclesiastes, Zach Eswine writes these words, Wisdom teaches us that tears, at their best, pay tribute to something lost that was once cherished, and it was wise to cherish it. We lament the loss of a genuine good. The spokesman of Ecclesiastes likewise looks at what the created world has become. His language rises deep from an intense longing for what it was meant to be, but is not. The lament is palpable. And this is why I think we, we hear Solomon say look, life was meant to be loved, not hated. Something is fundamentally broken about this world that no accumulation of experiences and possessions or even wisdom can undo. We're meant to hear the sage say that. As Swine continues, Ecclesiastes exposes to, uh, us to this kind of lament so that we dull our taste for the trinkets of the world and learn to hunger instead for something truer, deeper, richer. To want more than is offered here under the sun? And then on the basis of reverence for God to scream for a new and different life? This well captures the vocal mood of this book of Ecclesiastes. To want more than is offered here under the sun and to cry out for that. One of the music groups that has been formative in my life and really has served as kind of the soundtrack of my life is a group called Switchfoot. And they had, probably their biggest song was called Meant to Live. And they sung these words. We want more than this world's got to offer. We want more than this world's got to offer. We want more than the wars of our fathers. And everything inside screams for second life. And then they say this. We were meant to live for so much more. Have we lost ourselves? And the sage of Ecclesiastes would say, exactly. We were meant to live for so much more than the trinkets of this world, and we have lost ourselves. That is what life is like outside of Eden and under this sun. And so, my friends, when, when we hear the, the sage tell us, I hated life, I think there's a moment for us to be honest with what life really is like. And even when we hear that from family members or from friends To understand, they are experiencing the brokenness of life. They are experiencing butting up against what life is like east of Eden. Well, Solomon's not done telling us about his his frustration with life. He goes on and says this, verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. <laughs> Here Solomon says, you know something else I really hate? I spent all my life and all my energy and all my brains to pursue life and to gather and to accumulate. And I'm going to have to just leave that all behind. And who knows whether the person who comes after me is going to be wise or a fool. Well, the person who came after him was his son, King Rehoboam. And I think probably Solomon, in telling us these words, knew some of the foolishness of his son. Maybe he realized that Rehoboam, growing up with the wealth of the kingdom, being able to get everything that he always wanted, produced in him an immaturity and a spoiledness. And Solomon, here at the end of his life, is saying, Look, I'm going to leave it to my son. And who knows? Who knows? what he's going to do with it. Solomon tells us in verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Here he says, when I stop and I think about leaving everything to my son, everything I've worked for, everything I've striven for, it causes me to despair. He says in verse 21, Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. That word at the very end, evil, there, we have in our minds usually when we hear that word a suggestion of moral evil. But it's simply the, the Hebrew word for, for what is bad, and it sometimes can be used for um, a moral evil, but oftentimes it's used to describe something that spoils or something that's bad, like a bad apple. So when Solomon says, you know what, sometimes a person works all their life sweating and laboring, gathering, collecting, and I'm going to leave it to someone who did not work for it at all. And he says, you know what, this is this is an enigma, this, I can't get my, my mind around it, and And something about this just seems wrong. If only Solomon knew uh, what was going to happen after him. Rehoboam his son, and my Bible in 1 Kings chapter 12, it, it tells about Rehoboam's folly. And he even uses that headline there. Rehoboam, uh, on the death of Solomon, is crowned king of this kingdom that Solomon had spent his entire lifetime building up. And it was an amazing kingdom, Uh, one very unlike so many of the kingdoms of the ancient world. It was filled with wealth and everything. Rehoboam gets the throne, and the people come to him and say, basically, long live the king, but be easier on us than your father was. And so he counsels together with his buddies and say, what should I say? And they say, say to the people, uh, my little finger is bigger than my father's thigh. You thought he was tough. I'm going to be tougher. And the kingdom revolted on him, revolted on him. And and just days into his reign, this kingdom split. Judah remained faithful to him. The rest of the tribes left him. And all that Solomon had worked for fell apart in that moment. And we're told five years into the reign of King Rehoboam, Sheshak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem, and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. Solomon had no idea that just days after his death the kingdom would split, and he had no idea that even years into it, all the wealth that he had accumulated would be given to Egypt as they come up to make war against, against Israel. Rehoboam just opens the coffers and basically bribes the king of Egypt not to attack. And the king of Egypt took away everything that Solomon had spent his entire life accumulating. We're told in verse 22 from Solomon, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart from which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Here in verse 22, he raises again the central theme of Ecclesiastes, which we first saw in chapter 1, verse 3. What does a man get for everything that he's done under the sun? Philip Ryken, in his commentary, put it like this. Here is one of the great frustrations of our existence. We are born longing. I'm sorry, we are born with a longing for permanence, a deep desire to do something that will endure endure, or to make something that will last Yet the under-the-sun reality is that we will spend our whole lives to gain something we cannot keep. It was enough to drive the preacher to despair. And so here, King Solomon, that preacher king, the one who's assembling his audience and us to learn with them, tells us, look, this world is not going to give you what you're longing for. My friends, if, if we have ears to hear, our culture is saying this all the time. We saw already the poetry of Switchfoot. There's another band called The Verve, and they had a hit called Bittersweet Symphony. And in this song, they speak these words of poetry. Because it's a bittersweet symphony, this life, trying to make ends meet. You're a slave to the money, then you die. And then they sing, sing these words. Well, I never pray, but tonight I'm on my knees. Yeah, I need to hear some sounds that recognize the pain in me. Solomon is bringing us to this point where we understand that this world, east of Eden, under the sun, is indeed full of pain. I'm reminded of that line from The Princess Bride in in which um, the dread pirate Robert says, life is pain. If anyone tells you differently, they're trying to sell you something. <laughs> Solomon says it's full of pain. Switchfoot, full of pain. A bittersweet Symphony from the Verb tells us it's full of pain. And so, what will Solomon do with this? I mean, we would think that he is going to lead us to an even darker place. But this is what he says in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than... And this pause right there. How do you think he might fill out the rest of his thoughts there. There is nothing better for a person than (laughs) to make your life extraordinary. He says, been there, done that. To grab for all the gusto, he says, I've been there and I've done that. There is nothing better for a person than what is it this Solomon wants us to understand? Now remember, my friends, the goal of this sage of Ecclesiastes is our joy. He is working for our joy. And so, this is what he says. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or can, who can have enjoyment? This is an astounding uh, assertion made by this ancient wise sage. He tells us in the middle of this fleeting life that is oftentimes full of vexation and full of strife, there's nothing better than to find enjoyment in this life, even in fleeting things like eating and drinking. Because if you find that enjoyment, that itself is from the hand of God. And he raises this very interesting question. Apart from him, that is apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For two chapters the wise sage, has been telling us what life is like under the sun. And noticeably absent from those two chapters is God. He's brought up one time in verse 13 of chapter 1, and in that he said, basically, God has given humanity a heavy burden to try to find life apart from him. That's what we wanted to do, and so God allows us to do that. But apart from that one verse, God has been absent, and it's been full of what Solomon has been trying to do. And here he says, look, There is nothing better in this life that sometimes makes you want to scream on the inside than that you should eat and drink and find enjoyment with your work. That, he says, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat and have enjoyment? And what Solomon is doing here is he's bringing us back to a God-centered view of reality. Without God in the picture, it is dark and very dark. But with God in the picture, understanding who he is, his great heart of mercy, what his purposes and plans are, then we can find enjoyment in even the smallest things. And so he's going to tell us in in many ways, enjoying this life, this fleeting life, is not something we achieve, but something we receive from the hand of God. And so even though he didn't say these exact words, these are (laughs) words from the Apostle Paul who lived after the time of Jesus, there's a sense in which in this world, we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And our world wants to always either be rejoicing or to experience the sorrow. And yet in this world east of Eden, there's a sense in which we can be sorrowful. We can, we can feel the brokenness and the pain of living in a very broken and painful world, and yet also be able to rejoice in the midst of this. We're gonna apply that to our lives in just a moment. But first, let's see how Solomon ends this section. He says, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. I mean, here he tells us that the one who pleases God, God gives even more gifts to enjoy, wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And then he says this, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. What is he saying here? He's saying God is, is a great big gift giver to the one who pleases him. But to the sinner, sinner is understood as a person here who lives for themselves, like Solomon talked about so much in his life. That person who lives for themselves ends up giving it all away to the one who pleases God. And we ask ourselves the question, what's he talking about here? Uh, That's not always the case. Um, But I think he's thinking within the biblical worldview. Remember Solomon, the king of Israel, knew the story of the scriptures. He knew that God created this world to be his kingdom. And it was a glorious paradise. And yet humanity went their own way. They revolted against God. And we live in the experience of that revolt. But he also knew that God was going to come one day and reclaim this world for himself. And so there will be one who pleases God completely. That's the one who will be the heir of all things. And of course, who is that person? The one who is without sin. Jesus at his baptism heard this voice from heaven, You are my beloved son with you. you. I am well pleased. Despite what news commentators might say about Jesus not being perfect, he was the perfect human being. He loved everyone perfectly. And even against his accusers, he could say, Which of you accuses me of sin? And they were silenced. So Jesus is the one who is going to receive and inherit everything. He is the one who truly pleases God. And so I want to spend just a few moments with a couple points of application here, three in particular. The first point of application, and I want us to to go away with our study, is this. Not only is this life a gift to be received from from the hand of God, but so is eternal life. Not only is this life as tough as it is, but also filled with joys to be received from the hand of God, but so is eternal life. You guys know this most famous passage spoken by Jesus recorded for us by the Apostle John. God so loved this world, this this world that makes you want to scream. God so loved this world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Where Solomon could see at the end a tall dark stranger waiting for us that we don't want to meet, Jesus tells us, this one who is greater than Solomon, That God's desire is that none of us perish, but have eternal life. That's why he gave us his son. That whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. So you remember when Woody Allen said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. The gospel of Jesus comes to us and says, Listen, you don't have to achieve immortality through your work. It comes through the work of Jesus Christ. He's one who showed us what it was like to be a real, true human being who loved God and who loved everyone perfectly. And he was the one who went to the cross, who bore our sins upon his broad shoulders and rose again from the dead, guaranteeing us that eternal life. And so, immortality is not gained through our work or our possessions. It's achieved by the living, dying, and resurrected Savior. That's why the Apostle Paul would go on to say, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Solomon's big dilemma was, Someone is going to be the heir of everything I worked for, and who knows if they're going to squander it. And yet we're told here by the Apostle Paul that because of the grace of God displayed to us and lavished upon us in the person of Jesus, we become right with Him and we become heirs with Him of all things. This one to whom everything will be given in the end. So that's a a great way to, to begin our points of application here is to remember that not only is this life to be received as the gift of God, but so is eternal life. And with that, my friends, comes our second point of application. Remember that Jesus will never forget you. Don't forget this. Jesus will never forget you. Solomon wrestled with this issue of there being no enduring remembrance for people who have lived But because of Jesus, that becomes transformed into an enduring remembrance, and only an enduring remembrance. My friends, if Jesus came, that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he went to the cross with you in his mind, as he laid there, nailed to that cross, expiring his life for you. Do you think he could ever forget you? In fact, the New Testament teaches us to think like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, I'm sorry, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That problem that Solomon wrestled with about there being no enduring remembrance in Jesus Christ becomes resolved. Because of Jesus' death, famine, persecution, nakedness, sword, nothing can separate you from his love. And therefore, nothing will separate you from his affections. And so that's that's something for us to sink our teeth in. And here's the last point of application. Grow in God-given enjoyment of even the fleeting things of life. This too is also a gift from God. You see, the the trinkets of this world are merely that, they're they're trinkets, there's tinsel and gold here, but they're never meant to satisfy our hearts, not like God himself can. But when God becomes the center of our lives by grace in Christ, then we can enjoy this life, the gifts that God gives us. We can enjoy food and drink, and an evening with friends, and love of family, and not have to hang on to those as if that was our only life. God gives us eternal life in Christ. And so having that, we know that we can enjoy even fleeting things in life. However many days we're given to live our fleeting lives as a gift from God. And so we wanna say it like this. Joy comes from the hand of God. More specifically, it comes to us from the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, our great God and Savior. And because of that, We can have joy in this life. We can be surprised by it because now our lives are redeemed in everything in it. And that's why we're told, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And lastly, so whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Solomon would tell us that having a self-centered, selfish selfish life is not the answer, but to have a God-centered life is the answer, and that God-centered life comes to us by grace through Jesus Christ. So my friends, may you carpe diem all the fleeting days of your life under the sun, all to the glory of God, because even if this world doesn't remember you, Jesus always will. And that, my friends, is to live continually, surprised by joy.